Welcome to the T-Hud Podcast. I'm Moby. I'm Leland Steele. And awkward silence, because we do not have a guest this month, Oh listener. my word, it has been months. <laughs> it has, and listener, we were just talking about that, because obviously, <laughs> regardless of what's happened the past 6, 9, 12 months, this show is Leland and I show, um... Occasionally, the design was that we would actually do it just the two of us. But uh, yeah, Leland, we just uh, they were just breaking down the doors to be back on, baby. That's true. We were quite popular. It's all that Patreon money just flowing into their accounts. Everyone wants a beat. Everyone wants a percentage, man. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, listener, this does bring an opportunity to both keep a podcast under four hours and 45 minutes for once. (laughs) As as the podcasts with the guests do seem to go rather long, I should say. Sometimes, though. I think uh, last month's, though, was pretty good. So, yeah, uh, listener, we hope we have a good episode for you, though the episode, though a month in advance of Halloween, is in a way a Frankenstein episode in that I have patched it together of shit that has been in our Google Docs area that we call the Imaginarium so long that it was there when Marty, well, Marty was still enthusiastic to be on the show. Yeah, before he was before he was Ghost Marty. Before he was Ghost Marty, God rest his soul. <laughs> R.I.P. <laughs> R.I.P. I I prefer to say it rest not in peace. R.N.I.P. But um, <laughs> uh, so we got a good show for you, listener. As is typical when it's just Leland and I, we do actually have a condescending controversy there, where Leland and I violently agree with each other on topics. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> So we'll see if this one's any different. Well, you you know what's interesting is like, I mean, in a condescending controversy, uh, mo- like oftentimes, one of us will ag- like will agree on one side or the other, but it, we're having you know what uh, what most likely turns into a heated debate. So one of us inevitably has to argue the side that they may or may not actually support. And on this one, I don't really know which side I actually fall on. And on this one, I know what side I want because I proposed this and I said, Leland, you will argue this side and I will argue this side. <laughs> right. But I am very fragile and easy to be taken advantage of tonight <laughs> <laughs> and to be brought to your <sighs> side because I only have a few points on why I think it's a good idea and you could so easily convince me. Okay, cool, cool. Uh, Okay, so let's jump into the banter segment to start. And this is like, I really only have one banter, but this is pre-banter. Listener, I as an incredibly charismatic and cool individual run a psychology meetup once a month that meets (laughs) (laughs) somewhere out in socially distanced open to discuss psychology for three or four hours. And we had a new guy there today, and he actually was the first person to come other than myself. And when I introduced myself, he's like, wow, you have a good podcasting voice. And I said, well, dear sir, you would be excited to know what I'm doing when I get home from this. I just thought that was random. And I kind of asked him why, you know, this guy had met me literally 
10 seconds ago why he thought I had such a good podcasting voice. And he said, oh, well, you're expressive, you're friendly, you're blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. I had to throw in that anecdote getting, given the coincidence that we were literally recording today. That's pretty funny. That's pretty funny. So is he going to check the, check the show out? Uh, no. Just like typical listener, the guy actually said he was bored and got off and left half an hour into a three-hour meetup. So, Oh, no. He'd be the perfect <laughs> listener. He'd be the perfect <laughs> listener for this show. Just get up and leave as soon as, you know, Leland's done, you know, oh, man. board games. Well, you know, that's uh, that's good. I like the pre-bender. That's a funny anecdote. Uh, I have one and a half-ish pieces. And the, the, the latter uh, you'll certainly be able to engage with. But the first one I just wanted to ask you, you no longer have Disney Plus? I do not. Okay. So neither of us have watched Mulan. That came out, what, like last week, a week and a half ago. Out onto Disney decided to put it out onto their streaming service. Which apparently you would also then have to pay an extra 30 bucks to watch or something. Yeah, I heard that too. I don't really know what the, the, the actually particulars of that, but that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's <laughs> fucking ridiculous. But mm-hmm. I've also heard that it's garbage. And at the end of 2019, when we had our little upcoming 2020 movies, obviously well before uh, the pandemic and that wrecked a bunch of shit. This was in that list that you brought up, and I I think we both said that we were excited for it. Yes, it was, Leland, and I have not yet watched it. I plan on, but the the entrance fee to watch the movie is very large. I think what it'll take is Mandalorian Season 2 coming out next month, plus me maybe paying that plus 30 bucks for a month or something Mm, to see it. My favorite movie reviewer, listener, if you don't know, his name is Chris Stuckman. He's been my favorite movie reviewer for five plus years. Uh, He slammed it. He felt that it was soulless and not much fun, that the main actress who played Mulan, although she looked like Mulan, she was actually one of the worst actors in the film, and that it didn't have kind of the heart that Mulan the original had. And one of the things that concerns me when I say that is I was running. I remember I was running when I was listening to Stuckman's review. And I go, didn't I hear the same thing about the Lion King live action remake? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Word for word. And what I, I, I guess, Leland, I don't know if you can answer this question, but why? Why is Disney doing all these needless live action remakes of classic films instead of just putting the damn classic films on their streaming service yeah it it's cash grab it has to be cash grab yeah they've they spent 200 million bucks on this movie and obviously you know the pandemic and the way they had to release it is not good for them i mean they would have i i Opening weekend, this movie would have made a killing at a regular box office. Like, you know it would have. Like, it just would have. It absolutely would have. And I saw um, a Twitter thread about some. It was like a live Twitter thread of, I forget who it was, was watching it. And they were talking about, uh, or I I had caught it after it was like, you know, they were posting as they were watching. And I think then they subsequently watched the uh, original, the cartoon version. as I I think their partner hadn't seen it. And it was like, they were struggling with you know the original is obviously has a bunch of racist stuff in it and then now this one has a bunch of like sexist overtones and they're like 
I prefer the racism. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it was like the devil, you know, I, I guess like, <laughs> it sounds like it's this live action Mulan was just a clusterfuck and just, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know. I'm not excited to even watch it. Even no. if I could watch it for free. No, no. What Stuckman said. Okay. So a couple of criticisms of his number one is that he said they cut out a bunch of the movie in a way that you have to actually see and remember the Disney Mulan to get the new Mulan. So you practically have to watch the old Mulan to get the new Mulan. Number two, he said the action is done in that poor, like, I don't know what else to call it, but poor man's fashion of like quick cuts. You know, you see a slash cut slash someone's, you know, going away, you know, being hit or something slash slash. Like that way of people that don't know how to shoot action full frame without cutting every half second. Right. And so he really roasted it for that. Yeah, I'm not excited to watch it either. I will, but I I have very, very low expectations. That's disappointing. It's really disappointing. Okay, well, I was, I was just curious whether or not you had seen it or had the capability to see it. Was that your half banter or was that your main banter? That was my half banter. Curious. So my one of my main banter is this entire week, like literally all, I think actually legitimately every single day this week, except maybe one, I have played a number of hours of Star Citizen because it's currently, wow. and currently they are having their free fly event, which they have a couple times uh, per year. Where you can play the game for free, you don't have to buy a starter pack or starter ship, and you have access to up to sixteen different flyable ships. Uh, it runs okay. until September twenty third, so even when this drops, we're still basically in the middle of it. And I, I anybody that has the the rig to run it, I would definitely recommend trying it out. I mean, I didn't think I'd ever say those words would come out of my mouth. I'm like. I'm like almost mad that I enjoy the game as much as I do because it's so buggy and problematic, but there's so much to enjoy from it, even in its current state. I got to give it a try. You have convinced me that I am going to download it tomorrow and give it a try, which is weird. I have given it a try in distant previous versions. And listener, if you don't know the context here, I was actually like a backer in on the beginning. I probably backed the fucker to like, 500 bucks back in the day yeah yeah i think i got a really expensive ship and a cheaper ship okay i got a ship actually it kind of makes me want to play it with you because i got kind of a millennium falcon style ship that can take like multi-crew yeah maybe like you know four or five people it's got like gun turrets on the bottom and top um and then i got a fighter so i could fly with joe uh listener joe but yeah, I haven't really played it since a while ago. And I did actually have a few fun experiences with it. I told you, like, Joe and I were playing, and I'd landed my ship on the space station. And out of some space lock came a guy crawling on his belly. And he <laughs> crawled on his belly to the ramp of my ship. And I'm literally typing, get the fuck out of here. Get the fuck out, man. And he would just wiggle and face me. I didn't know what to do. I'm like, can I shoot him with my pistol? Am I? Do I take off? Like, I don't know. This is there's social norms in space that I'm not used to because I'm from terrestrial Earth. Yeah. And uh, you know the same story. I, I may have told this before, listener, but I, I love it. But uh, there was like one planet, one city you could go to at a time, and a guy was like, Hey, hey, I found treasure. Come with me. Tre- treasure. 
So I was like, okay. So he leads me into some dark alley with like a few people. I'm like, where's this treasure? He's like, oh, come just a little bit further. Leads me into more of an alley. I'm like, how many alleys are there in this city? And nobody's around. And there's literally like dust in papers flying. He's like, oh, it's just a little bit further to the treasure. And I'm getting sketched out. I'm like, this guy's going to shank me on some planet. And I actually remember I got so scared. I just like hard turned off my computer, like held the power button. <laughs> like he's going to rob me of my game and my $500 or oh, something. That's so but funny. it was fun. It was yeah. fun, man. It's very enjoyable. I, I, I imagine this, this, the game is in a much more advanced stadium from the last time you probably played. You just with this game, you just got to know, you know, when you when you bug out or when the game crashes, when you 30k is what it's called, because you get this error 30,000. So they call it 30k. When you crash, you just got to roll with it. You just hop in, enjoy the game for what it offers, because it's starting to offer quite a bit. Like earlier this week, uh, myself and some of my co-hosts from the Incredible Party, Bill and Elena, we were rolling around in probably the ship that you bought. It's called a hammerhead. It sounds exactly what you think. There's like four four turrets on the side, one on the top, one in the back. Uh, I'm flying the thing. We're jumping in asteroid fields. They're blowing everybody up, and I'm you know trying to maneuver around the asteroids. Is it's literally a flying gun plat? Like it's just it was it's really fun. I was playing right before we started recording today, actually, and I was down on a planet. I was going to explore a cave, and someone was clearly going to do the same mission as I did. So I saw them flying behind me, and I'm like, hmm. I slow down and let them pass me, and then I tail them. And I don't know, maybe they didn't notice me or care. They land at the cave. I come up, and I see, oh, they've left their back door open. So I, I <laughs> land. I land. They're, they're in the cave at this point. There's no one around. I land. I go up their ramp into their ship. I sit in the pilot seat. I'm, I'm like, I'm going to blow this ship up. So I activated the self-destruct, thinking I could sprint out of it and let it blow up. And oh my. everything was shut tight, and I didn't get out of the ship until it, and it blew me up inside of it. <laughs> <laughs> Just that that happened is amazing. It's though. pretty sweet. So then I, of course, got a crime stat, and, you know, I gunned down some cops. I got more crime stat, and then eventually I got hunted down by, I think it was another player, getting collecting a bounty on me. And I, I died, and I'm now in prison for three hours. <laughs> three real real-time hours. Wow. <laughs> Perfect timing for podcasts. Very perfect timing. <laughs> Hi, listener. I'm in prison right now. <laughs> Leland Steele. I'm Prisoner Steele. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Leland Steele behind Steele today. <laughs> Man, that's amazing. That really wants me to make make me play. Now, okay, so so simple question before we move on. Me as a longtime backer who has not played in literally two years, so there's a ton of development since. But okay. but you know it's still, of course, incomplete. Do you believe the game is a scam? Or do you actually think they're moving towards something pretty cool? So I don't believe that uh, it's a scam as far as the developers having any type of ill uh, ill will or malcontent and, and, and purpose of taking people's money and not delivering. Currently, they are focusing, I hear most of the team is focusing on their Squadron 42, I think it's called, which is yes. uh, the solo, yes. a solo campaign uh, part of it. Uh, so a lot of what's happening in the multiplayer universe, I, I, I don't know. I don't want to say like is going unchecked, um, because I think that's blowing it out of proportion, but, uh, obviously there's, there's like, there's always no known bugs with the game. The bugs always change. It's just depending on what bugs on the current version. Uh, and there actually was just a new update like two weeks ago 
oftentimes when they do a big update, people like lose all of their ships they've purchased with in-game currency and everything gets reset uh, as, a, as a thing of, of a clearing all the caches and all that crap. You know, all that shit that they do when they update the versions. Uh, so now's a good time to start playing. And again, it's free fly. Get in. Try. It's super fun. The only thing about the free fly is like it is not at all really uh, a good – it doesn't at all really show uh, a new player what game they're getting when they first start because unless you're willing to spend real-world money to get more of these ships, you really – you will have to grind in-game currency if you want to buy some of the cooler ships. They can range upwards of a few million uh, in-game credits and – usually the highest accepted mission you can do in your list of missions is worth 15 grand so it's a grind but there are certainly lots of ways to make money quickly uh like mining for instance you can rent ships in game uh so you can still get a taste of other ships i don't know i i i'm saying i really like it i i don't i don't believe it's a scam anymore i i guess before i was on the fence before really experiencing it just hearing the the, this eight year what how, how what twenty twelve it the chaos launched or whatever yeah tw- yeah twenty twelve November of twenty twelve is when I made yeah my just hearing this joke. eight year alpha <laughs> that is who knows when it will get a to beta even I don't know I don't know it's interesting at what state does a game move from alpha to beta I mean I feel like what may what makes a game alpha is beta literally like pre launch. Is that what that really is? Like, I, I don't really get it. Yeah, it's it's like semi-solidified to like, okay, this is what we have and this is what we want. Now let's test it. Right. Whereas Alpha, they're still growing it. And that's why I think it's fair that Star Citizen is still in Alpha, even mm-hmm. if it's in a fairly advanced stage of Alpha. Okay. But, I mean, you know, we don't have to get into it, but the whole thing is, you know, Star Citizen is basically split in two. You have these original backers that think the thing is the biggest scam in the world, and Chris Roberts has run away with all the money. And you have a bunch of people that say, wow, this thing is still so much fun. I'm having so much, you know, so many memories as it grows. And and so, yeah, you kind of really have the two sides. So, I just haven't gone into it in so long. Uh, yeah, there's a there's a ton of Star Citizen streamers. Um the community, the, yeah, you're like you say, the community is very divided, it seems, but the people that are outspoken about it are really outspoken about it. And I think they've just learned to have this patience with the game, uh, which I've learned myself, quite frankly. The first few times I played it, it was very frustrating. I had one really bad day about the third or so time I had booted it up, and it crashed on me like three times in an hour. And I was like, okay, I'm, I can't do this. And I had a, I came back to it a few days later, and... It was working better. I, like, I don't know. I'm enjoying myself, and I'll continue to enjoy myself. Well, you know what? Hey, I would love to sometimes set up a day where you and I play it. And maybe it's, you know, I, I, I just like to see what that would be like. So let's uh, let's count on setting that up. Yeah, definitely. Uh, my one real banter I have is regarding the Dune trailer. And so how I talk about it is starts with whether or not have you seen the trailer for Dune? I have not. Have you been interested in Dune in the past or no? Not really. Uh, no, it's not. It's an IP I never really touched on. Or I actually, I do have the first novel. I don't know if it's a series of novels. I have a Dune book <laughs> yet to read. <laughs> um, yeah, so listener, the Dune trailer long awaited. Uh, Denny Villeneuve, pretty much the uh, the best guy for science fiction, uh, best director, 
certainly these days. Uh, his Dune trailer came out and it response to it was overwhelmingly positive. Uh, the casting looks great. I mean, the casting's all-star. You've got Oscar Isaac. I mean, you've got uh, Jason Momoa. You've got uh, Josh Brolin. Uh, you've got uh, Swedish guy Stellan Skarsgård from Chernobyl who won an Emmy like last year. He's he's in it. He plays Baron Harkonnen. I mean, I could do, go down the list. Zendaya. I mean, the the all-time Mary Jane Zendaya. <laughs> um, so anyways, you, you've got like everybody and they all look like they're really, really well casted. Everything looks great. Really no complaints. I mean, even from hardcore Dune fans. And I think we could potentially have a modern day science fiction classic that, unlike Blade Runner 2049, actually delivers at the box office this time. Hmm. You know, yeah, I mean, Dune is an IP that has a huge, I don't even know if it's a cult following, but the people that really like it really like it and it's like this weird blank spot in my pop culture knowledge and or experience uh i mean yeah i guess it's a, it was a little before my time probably although there's been plenty of attempts at revitalizing i mean they had a dune tv show was it the tv show or the the other the second movie or whatever that had james mcavoy in it i think it was i think it must have been the mini series uh, which actually was two miniseries. There's uh, oh. Dune and Children of Dune, ah. uh, both which were quite good. Uh, of course, there was the David Lynch, your fan. Uh, he mm-hmm, did his mm-hmm. movie. Yep. Now, I believe David Lynch actually made a fantastic movie, but most of it was left on the cutting room floor because he was forced to cut out close to literally half of the movie. Hmm. So I've seen the film by Lynch and I know what he was going for. And I really, really think he he was actually nailed something or, or would have nailed something. But um, you could tell that there were huge gaps. Yeah, well, I I, I think a lot of some of the changes for that, the Lynch movie, too, versus uh, what shows up in the novel and wasn't received very well, I don't think, from from hardcore fans of the source material. And I, th- I think a lot of it was Lynch trying, like changing the medium and doing what he could to visually get across things that much more easily can be explained in a no- in a novelization because uh, that's yes. what a novel needs to do to you. It needs to paint you the picture in the words, but you don't got the words for this. You need to see it on the screen. So some of these things that you can read about and maybe visualize yourself, they need to be visualized by someone else in a cinematic form. No, you're right. You're right. And Dune has been called one of those quote-unquote unfilmable movies yeah. for that reason. Now, I don't, I don't want to necessarily call BS on that, but I would say it's very difficult to film from mm-hmm. what I've seen of it. Um, it just involves so many different things that either require a lot of visual interpretation, as you're saying, or else just it's clear, but it's like very expensive special effects, like the sandworms or absolutely gigantic and um all the different creative uh, machines that they have but yeah going back to what why have you not really read it or seen it so far well the science fiction that was most inspired by dune is star wars and you don't give a shit about star wars so <laughs> you wouldn't give a shit about the parent of star wars yeah either. maybe it's just natural it's natural <laughs> It's okay. I, uh, I completely understand. That's funny. Uh, but listener, if you're at all interested in sci-fi, uh, space opera, whatever, I would look up on YouTube uh, Dune 2020 trailer. 
Yeah, I'll put it in the show notes. Awesome. Well, are uh, I think we're ready to dive into controversy. Let's do it. Let's condescend. All right, listener. Dusting it off. It's time for condescending controversy. <laughs> oh, it's, it's yeah. more dusty <laughs> so much than it is in the skies of Vancouver right now. <laughs> so, so much, baby. Oh, yeah, yeah. Way more even than the uh, the smoky soot we've got in the air. Okay. So this, okay. So, uh, listener, I mentioned that uh, the two segments that we will do, and we will have two full segments, um, were from our old Imaginarium that we're dusting off. But... This condescending controversy is new, and it's it's basically was the impetus to this entire episode, which was, Leland, I want to do just me and you and discuss this topic. So, the topic is such, is DC is planning, and the first film in which they will plan, they are planning to start to bring their film universes together. And what I mean by that... I, it's a bigger scale than you think if you don't know what DC is planning to do. When I say D- DC is pr- planning to bring together everything live action that they've done in one multiverse, I mean everything. And the most important part for me is they are literally trying to fold in the 1989 Michael Keaton Batman and following iterations into their multiverse and so i think i in a facebook chat or something i told leland i said i thought this was the most awesome idea ever leland said (laughs) bullshit and i was like okay there we go we've got a condescending controversy (laughs) yeah um and this even uh possibly or is it confirmed extends to uh television series like the cw arrowverse which itself Correct. has already built its own multiverse within the narrative of the, of the six or seven shows that it has had at the same time or uh, in total. I believe some of them may have come run their course uh, by now or been canceled. I don't know. I stopped paying attention to the Arrowverse years ago, unfortunately. So, I mean, also like some of the, their HBO Max series that are upcoming like uh, and ongoing like Doom Patrol and all that stuff. It's, it's an undertaking. It's nuts. Well, well, I mean, okay, look, so we're both frustrated by endless retconning, so I'll admit that to start. Okay, I mean, I have a number of points. I almost want to say, like, who's the prosecution and who's the defense on this condescending controversy? <laughs> I feel like I'm the prosecution. I feel like I need to convince you. Is Warner Brothers guilty or on trial? Warner Brothers is on trial right now. Warner Brothers is on trial, and... I mean, I've got basically five points, but a few of them are half-assed, which should be no surprise. So, I mean, I'm trying to look here because I didn't actually put them in any particular order. But the, the first point I'll throw at you is, look, DC has long trailed Marvel. We've discussed this many yep. times yep. on the podcast. So DC needs to do something revolutionary. They need to do something to shake things up. And it's going to take more than just the Snyder Cut to change everything up so is this not a good way to even attempt to retcon to bring some good publicity and start to shake things up in their favor why do they have to do this though why do they why are they even trying to compete with mcu why bother they've started they're five years behind even starting to think about it 
and they couldn't pull it off to catch up to, their, to, to Marvel's box office numbers. Why, why are they trying? They 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 have this this garbage foundation that they've tried to build from and laid in poorly, and then, right. so they're already shaking. Like I feel like they're just grasping at straws. Oh oh no, I actually agree with you on that. Surprise, surprise, listener. I agree with you on that. But what I'm saying is they have to roll the dice and try to go sneak eyes. That That's really what this first point is. They have no other opportunity. They're so far behind. Right. They, they, they literally have nothing to lose. Right. And I don't know if that means that this is a point in my favor or not, but that is my point, is that they are in a desperate phase. They're lagging behind Marvel. They must do something like this. I don't know. I mean, you can see I, you, you disagree, but it's no, a minor no, no. point, I'll admit. I agree that they've got no options left, but they put themselves in this hole. So this is not something they should be praised for. They've left themselves with no options. Like this isn't some no. revolutionary, oh my God, what are they doing? This is amazing that they're taking this risk. No, like you say, this is the last thing they got. They're, they've been pulling the straws and finally made it to the short one. That's all they have. So <laughs> I, I don't know. It just like it doesn't feel impactful to me. You know what I mean? Like it doesn't feel like someone had someone was like, you know what? We're, we're as a as a conglomerate, we're, we're very proud of what we've done in the past and we want to try to move our present and future movies into some of that quality that we achieved. And how do we do that? Well, maybe if we integrate some of that quality, we can build off of that. I see. It's like <laughs> it's almost like you've got three dead batteries in a toy, so you're going to replace, you know, like one good battery and leave the two other dead batteries there and hope it somehow is enough juice to wiggle on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know what? Okay. You know what? I am a reasonable man, listener. I will concede that point to Leland, even though I was the prosecutor and bringing it up. <laughs> so Leland, given your immaculate preparation for every episode, do you have a point in defense pre-written for this? I guess it kind of reflects on this first point, but like, this is the easy way out for them. This is the easiest thing for them to do right now. And instead of making good movies, this is their easiest thing they're going to do. Because making a good movie is not easy. So they're, they're just going to be able to say that things fit in wherever the hell they want. So anybody that is any is at all like anal retentive about any type of continuity or you know, cinematic screw ups and all this. Like, it's not going to matter because there's no way anybody's going to be like trying to piece them together and keep everything on track. And yes, a multiverse means multiple universes, which could include parallel universes. So that continuity is less important to bother with. But if they're not going to take the steps to try and make something out of the continuity and make it cohesive, then again, what is the point? Like, it's just... This is just an easy way out for them. They, they've, they've, they're next to the fire exit as soon as the alarm goes off, and they can take two steps and they're out the door. Like the building's on fire, but they think they're fine because they're leaving everybody behind <laughs> inside of it. Okay, let me let me throw this out there because this is another point I have, but I think it plays off your point. Uh, it's the elephant in the room. Okay, so as part of this multiverse, DC is planning to roll in Keaton. And Keaton's Batman in 1989 could 
arguably be considered as having planted the seeds for, you know, 12, 13 years later for the entire superhero genre that we enjoy today. Okay. And so I was really excited about that. And I think my point is, is that bringing back a Titan, for the lack of a better term, as Michael Keaton's Batman or Bruce Wayne, is that not a good reason for doing this while he's still around and could mentor younger characters? I think it's... it's, So, when you first message like you message about that and my first reaction was will warner brothers ever get their fucking shit together and figure out what they actually want to do with this goddamn dceu that was my initial very reactionary thought and obviously i think it's awesome that keaton's gonna come back as batman i think that's awesome and apparently like even affleck's bat will show up in the flash movie what? I didn't even know that. Very possibly. And and Cavill Soup Soups could show up. Uh I mean I know he was it was a, kind of been up in the air whether or not he's going to return as Superman. Well, obviously with this Flash movie it's probably going to be some type of Flashpoint thing where uh, this multi this universe gets shattered or it's discovered of this multiverse. I mean we kind of had a bit of that I guess in BVS with the Flash, you know, giving that vision to Bruce, blah, blah, all this crap that it's kind of there already. And DC, as a, a comic company for the graphic novels, always have some type of crisis, whether it's Infinite Crisis or, you know, Crisis on Infinite Earths or, or whatever. There's, there's multiple times where this multiversal crisis has occurred, which serves as some type of soft reboot for a lot of their uh, comic lines, whether or not they're going to uh, abandon some heroes' runs or start new ones or just reboot new ones. I mean... You know, we had the new 52 a number of years ago and all this blah, blah, blah. So this isn't unusual for DC. And like if Warner Brothers is talking to somebody that's running DC Comics, then they're they're probably getting, they're being told some good advice. So I don't know. I mean, I, I kind of like Ezra Miller's Flash. I know when the whole thing way, way back when like Justice League was first was to become a thing and Flash hadn't even been cast yet. It was a lot of people wanting... Uh, the Arrow versus Flash actor, gosh, I'm blanking on his name now, to, to possibly maybe take up that role. And like there, I, I myself was wondering, well, I mean, are any of these Arrowverse going to possibly make it into the film? And maybe that is going to start to happen once all of this unfolds. Like, who knows? I don't know if any of those TV actors can hold their own in the whole movie. That's a whole other question. I don't know. Uh, I, I mean, the CW Productions has a specific style. That I don't think really translates to uh, the big screen at all, but that's a whole nother conversation. So I and I want to see all of these different versions of Batman. I, I do want to see that. And for that, I do think it's a cool thing that we're going to get. As fans of these characters, I do think that's pretty, pretty rad. Well, I guess that would be a minor point in my favor. Okay, so another point I had is we have all these disparate dc universes and i for one kind of find it hard to enjoy them separately i mean is this just my personal thought or do you feel like there's a thought out there that you know maybe dc should kind of rope itself together because honestly like the dc multiverse is a thing it's been well established in the comics many times over 
Maybe this is just reflecting what should be for the fans. I don't know. You think the average moviegoer gives a shit about that? No, it's a good point, Leland. I mean, where you've really got me by the balls is from the first point, which is, okay, even if everything I say is correct, you could... Why am I making my argument for you? Please tell me to shut up. Well, okay, but the main thing I, I expected to counter from you is for you to go, why now, Moby? Why would they do this now? And you could go, Moby, and you go back to the original point. The only reason they're doing this now is desperation. They're losing. They've been losing for many years. And whatever good things you can say about tying together the multiverse or explaining the multiverse, to do it now is only a last-ditch rolling of the die dice for for snake eyes okay so to answer why that's a that's a good question why now but you look at their last three major releases for the dc eu shazam aquaman and birds of prey right i mean none of right. none of those three i i haven't seen any of those three and had really no interest in seeing any no. of those three i haven't been interested nope. in seeing a dc film since uh I guess Suicide Squad, which came after Suicide Squad came after yeah. BVS, right? So whatever that last one was, yeah. and I was incredibly disappointed. So I haven't, I don't give a shit about these movies right now. I don't care about them. But but each of those movies had nothing to do with the greater DCEE. Really, they were very much their own standalone things, uh, and each kind of critically shit the bed. Uh, I, maybe with the exception of Shazam, I hear I heard some good things about Shazam. And of those three, that would be the one I would prefer to watch. So I don't know if those movies would have been improved if they had more ties into this multiverse or if the viewer just knew that they existed in this crazy multiverse. Because like you say, they already do. Yeah. I don't think these movies would have been saved for that reason. Warner Brothers needs to start making good movies with this intellectual property that's what it boils down to make good movies get the proper writers consult with the people that are experts on these characters maybe try to hold on to the first director you hire for your project instead of (laughs) you know like fucking disney does the same shit with their the fucking star wars movies like it's all the same crap it doesn't matter what fucking company is doing it it's a bunch of garbage focus on making good fucking movies with good decent narrative structures that pull directly from famous comic arcs just do it that's what people want that's what hardcore fans of these characters want to see their favorite stories play out on in live action just make fucking focus on making good movies i don't i personally don't and this is kind of my final point now we're this huge three-phase marvel thing is concluded has been concluded for over a year now why does any of this matter at all right now why does any of this multiverse talk matter at all right now. I think the window's closed. I'm really tired. Mm. Like, like as great as the MCU was, and yeah, it, it it itself had a bunch of movies that, outside of post-credit scenes, are very much standalone movies and don't need to really be considered as to be part of this huge multiverse. But, like, it, I'm tired. Like, the MCU yes. tired me out. I'm exhausted. Yes. <laughs> you know what? You have two movies, one called infinity war the second called end game all one word it's like okay like marvel you got it you got the money we were excited we saw the films we filled the theaters 
I don't want to watch this shit that trickles down after for the most part. And I, you know what, this is, maybe this is a discussion for next episode or something. I wonder where the superhero genre is going to go. God bless his soul. Chadwick Bosman passed away recently. We remember him. He was a fantastic actor, but you lose one of the shining stars in the MCU and you already are coming off of Endgame. Hell, after the, these, after Endgame, you're, you know, I mean, death, real life death aside, MCU is losing a lot of their, lost a lot of their big heroes, right? I mean, yeah. we're down Tony, we're down Cap, and now we're down uh, uh, Chadwick as the original Black Panther. Yeah, <sighs> like, huge losses. Exactly. Like, like, look, I'll probably, if the theaters are open, you know, I loved Thor Ragnarok enough, I'll, pro- I'll probably go see Thor 4. But there's nothing else in the entire Phase 4 that I will go to see in theaters, unless you drag me to it. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm hard-pressed to, to pick something that I really care about or are excited about. Yeah. I'm burnt out. On, honestly, I was like, all this superhero stuff, I, I'm just severely burnt out on it. I just want... And, and, and here's the thing. Here's the thing Warner Brothers needs to be capitalizing on. There is such a distinction between a Marvel movie and a DC movie. Everyone has got to be feeling some type of Marvel fatigue. DC can stand out against that fatigue right now. They just, they're already making different stylized type of movies they have. I mean, I I know I I hate to use the stupid, the the gritty, the grittiness, but like they've already established this this tone. Well, yes, yes. But I feel like that term itself is overused and is is applied to a lot more different aspects of a certain, (laughs) certain films. Uh, than it really needs to be. But, like, they clearly stand apart from anything produced by Disney right now. Ca- they need to capitalize on it. Like, I mean, look I mean, look how, how look how much of a different DC movie Joker was. And despite yeah. my own feelings, I mean, honestly, that movie, even thinking about it now, I'm like, I'm on the fence about because there are a lot of things in that movie that I liked. There's a lot that I didn't, all for various reasons that we've gotten into before. We don't need to get into right now. They just, I think they have a new window to capitalize on and it doesn't include it doesn't need to include extending every single property they have ever created before into some type of multiverse you know what i think i think if there's something you've convinced me of today is the two words why now had they tried to pull something this ballsy off say three four years ago I'd be a hell of a lot more intrigued. Yeah. You know, you big Keaton right around the time that he did the first Spider-Man movie or something, and then you hype up that you're bringing him back as Batman or Bruce Wayne. Okay. You know what? During that time, I'd be excited enough that I'm like, I'm on board. This is a creative idea. But it feels like, you know, superhero films are are losing their energy. They're, They're like flames being snuffed out. And you're at a somber funeral and DC is barging into the church with, you know, maracas being like, we're here. Samba. (laughs) It's like, nobody cares, DC. You know, nobody cares. Like, you know, I love Keaton. Okay. But what I don't want to have is a situation with like Dennis Nedry from Jurassic Park going, you know, we've got Keaton here. We've got Keaton. We've got Keaton. (laughs) Nobody cares. You're right. Everyone looking around. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. (laughs) That's right. That's the part of this. That's the part of the quote I forgot. Nobody cares. Right. Oh, my goodness. That quote fits even better. Every situation. I I tell you, we could use the Dotson quote anywhere you you put it in. (laughs) 
listener Dotson for president 2021 just you know have him as up as an independent candidate <laughs> okay so here's here's a thing that i didn't really think about or, or i'm just kind of thinking about now is pattinson's the batman upcoming the trailer for that looked right intriguing i was intrigued by the trailer yeah. it was a cool looking trailer it was meant and is and is being shot and I believe was being written as a movie outside of the DCEU. So obviously, should this go through, that's not the case anymore. What does that sully that movie potentially? Like, what if we then see a variety of Batman's in a singular movie? We get like Pattinson and we get Batfleck and we get you know Keaton and uh, well, who who would? Who's the who's going to be the current Batman? I don't know. Will they are they going to make patents in the current DCU Batman now? Because uh, I saw a quote from Affleck saying his like publicist is like you got to stop doing Batman or you're going to drink yourself to death. <laughs> like, <laughs> so there's no, there's wow. no way he's like he's he's not going to continue to be Batfleck. Like that's not going to happen. <laughs> no, but okay, okay, you're you're kind of dancing around an interesting point here. Which is, you know, Pattinson, he's this actor that has emerged from Twilight as actually a very good dramatic actor. I don't know if you've seen The Lighthouse, but he was phenomenal in it, yeah. in a dramatic role. And so now they put him as Batman, and and a lot of people are excited, wanting to see what this guy can do with it. Now, you stick this guy in a multiverse with Batfleck, who is well-received, and Keaton, and these other characters, like you're almost going to shoot yourself in the foot with your new Batman. No matter how good Pattinson is, the eyes are always going to be on Keaton and on Batfleck. That's just my opinion. Think of like movie one or two. Is this supposed Flash movie that retcons and combines the multiverses and you just like, you know, toss in Pattinson as like the Parmesan cheese on top of the Caesar salad. It's like, he he's gonna be missed there with all these other titans that make make up the whole. Uh, yeah, I mean, for, for all, he could have a he could have a standout performance in the Batman, and like you say, be thrust into this larger, grander scale and just be minimized because of it. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know. Just more reasons. This, I, I mean, yeah, it is the is all they got is a last ditch effort, but I feel like it. I, I want to say it comes with risk, but like, I, like literally at this point, like. What are they risking? Their movies are already shitting the bed. Yeah. They need yep. to, like you say, they need to start doing something. So well, what else do they got? You know what? This is almost one of the most depressing condescending controversies. <laughs> there's no winner like, here. <laughs> there's no winner. Okay. I have to concede. What I will concede, what I will concede is right idea at wrong time. Okay. With, with the asterisks of what you've been arguing, which is they had no choice. But it's still the wrong time. They 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 left it to the wrong time. There's no way they can do it to really capitalize on it. And and it's just sad to look at the desperation of what DC's trying to do. Why can't they just continue to make movies like Joker and The Batman? Why can't they just be their own thing why does i mean i guess this is a greater problem with hollywood everything needs to be sequelized you need to skeek out every bit of cent and buck you can out of every single project you do otherwise you're never going to make you're never going to do another project because they have for the lack of a better term penis envy for 
what the MCU brought in, at least in dollars, in ticket sales. Yeah. That's all it comes down to. I guess. You have argued this before, and I think I've agreed with you. This is like many podcasts past, like, you know, 20 past, which is DC is constantly trying to catch up to Marvel, like, financially and for popularity. You know, oh, what's what's Marvel doing? How are they making so much money? What's Marvel doing? And the irony of the situation is what DC should have been doing all along is just be DC. You have an audience. You have a lot of us people that are worn out of PG sanitized frigging no blood Marvel and are ready to see something like you say gritty even if it's overused. But DC is like, no, we have this, but instead we'll try to be like Marvel. We'll sanitize herself. We'll we'll scrub off her fingerprints. And it's like, no, DC, no. Yeah, I I completely, completely, absolutely agree. It doesn't have it, it shouldn't be a Marvel versus DC. I have the dollars for both. It should be Marvel and exactly. DC. I don't I have favorite characters from both from dc and marvel i don't shun one because i have favorite the other i got the capacity for both why why can't the studios realize this it's you know what it's the same thing when you have like fox uh versus disney and all the x-men shit all before you know all before it's now one thing like that's the same shit like yeah it feels like they're just cannibalizing each other and unfortunately marvel is the bigger badder predator and eating the hell out of dc and dc is trying to pick up pick at the scraps that marvel's yeah. leaving behind which isn't much because dc's not doing that great <laughs> no you know what uh so i mean as we come to the end of condescending controversy i will concede a, a win to leland on this one but i concede it with a small asterisk and that it was the right idea i believe at the wrong time right now it just speaks of desperation and because of that, it now speaks to depression. <laughs> it's just seeming like, why? Why are we doing this uh, now in 2020? We've got yeah. a pandemic and there's smoke outside and the sky is glowing red. And now DC is combining all their universes. <laughs> just the cherry on the shit cake of just 2020. cherry on the shit cake. <laughs> Michael Keaton, I'll still love you no matter how they puppet your corpse the strings <laughs> on this one. <laughs> Okay. Well, you know what? Uh, let's let's run into. Are you are you okay? Since I conceded, are you okay with running into uh, full segment one? Yeah, let's do her. All right. I'll announce this one. You get the next one. Welcome to video game variety show. This one is called Our Avatars, which is it's a pretty simple in concept, Leland. But I wanted to ask you if you had any trouble with this because I had a ton of friggin' trouble. Uh, simple idea, listener. We wanted to pick our top five favorite video game characters. And this became extraordinarily hard for me to do. Uh, Leland, easy, hard. What do you think? It uh, it was difficult. And we will see when we get to the, the you know, the, the ones and twos of my list. I may have cheated a little bit, but I swear I have. Uh, I do have some good reasons to back it up. <laughs> so I, I, I maybe have made it a little easier on myself than it could have been. But yeah, this was surprisingly difficult because I ended up getting into the thought of, well, what are some of my favorite games? And then you have to go from there and think, are they my favorite games because of the main character? Because many games right. 
many games, the the protagonist is meant for you to reflect yourself upon. Yes. And uh, it, it became very difficult to choose some of the standouts. And, and obviously, like, hell, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I mean, I'm looking at this list now and I'm thinking – well, you know what? I think a little outside the box, like I might even want to even change my my number five, but I'll stick with stick with what I got. Yeah, yeah. Actually, very similar to you, Leland. The the issue I ran into on this is that um, I found that in many of my favorite games, the protagonist, the player that you actually were, was one of the most minimized characters or mute characters, simply because, you know, that's the point that you're this character in this game. And, you know, it should be more about who surrounds you, who are you fighting against, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, now, I didn't limit myself. Don't don't think that I did this wrong and I limited myself to main characters. In fact, as I look at this uh, list of five I have, only one of my five favorite characters is actually the main character of the game, which may or may not come as a shock to you. Every other character is a secondary character that you interact with. But that goes back to my point. So, like, I'll tell you, okay, you know, this is not this is not spoilers, or maybe is listener. I love Zelda. Link is not on my list because, okay, well, there might be an asterisk to that wink. You'll you'll figure that out. <laughs> okay. But Link himself, in any individual game, is not one of my favorites, despite Zelda being one of my favorite game series, because Link is quiet. He doesn't speak. You play him, but everybody just somehow magically talks to him without being spoken against or spoken back to. And so I can't pick him as my favorite character if he's like this soulless mute that just is me as the player. Yeah, no, that's that makes sense. And, you know, it's funny. I I'm I'm the opposite. One on my list uh, is not the main character. Interesting. Well, okay. so here's the interesting thing. So I believe you will be able to guess or else when I say one of my top five, you'll go, okay, yeah, Moby, I know you. Yeah, that makes sense. The other four, I don't believe you will guess, even if you had a gun pointed at your head. Okay, so here's how I'd like to do this, Leland. So we want to start at five, and uh, maybe I'll go first. And I want to go, when I... Say who my number five is. I want to say, obviously, what game series it's from, why I like the character, what I believe the impact on the game might be for that character or on the main character themselves. And, well, yeah, and basically just that. I mean, there's a couple general questions I want to ask once we're done our top five. But really, why do you like that character and what impact do you feel that character had on the game or potentially the franchise? It's a big enough character. Okay. Okay. Number five, you definitely won't know because it is from a video game that I gave you as a gift, believing that your PS3 was backwards compatible, but it actually was not. Uh, The game is Silent Hill Origins. I love Silent Hill, listener. We've never actually discussed the series here because I'm the only one that plays it of of myself, uh, Leland, and Ghost Marty. And it is my favorite boss from the entire series who is named Mama. And she is from the game Silent Hill Origins. So the backstory to Mama is you play a trucker named Travis Grady, who's a pretty gritty guy. And uh, one of the first places you have to go to is a sanitarium. 
uh, which somehow in this game is a place for not just sick people, but crazy people. And at the end of this huge sanitarium hospital level, uh, you unlock this door and uh, there's you you basically if you don't know Silent Hill listener, it's pretty, pretty screwed up. Um, it's basically a nightmare world slash purgatory that you kind of have to fight your way through your own issues. So it turns out the main character has to fight his mom there. His mom is represented as basically like a bandaged, almost looks like a mummy stuck in a giblet, which is a metal contraption that hangs from the ceiling. She's got her jaw splayed open. And uh, it's because historically in the game, she went crazy and tried to kill you. And uh, basically what happens is you break into her room and she screams at you. She's like, hey, boy, come closer so mama can take a look at you. And uh, then she basically starts to spin around with spikes in the room and ejects poisonous gas and all this disgusting stuff. And you have to blow her away. She's the single most terrifying thing I've ever fought in any survival horror game ever. I have a lot of survival horror games, including some which are considered much scarier than Silent Hill Origins. Perhaps this is because I had a healthy and uh, good relationship with my mom that I never had to see her bandaged up and hangs from the ceiling in a giblet trying to kill me with spikes and poisonous gas. But uh, it definitely was, for whatever reason, one of the scariest bosses I've ever faced. Very memorable for me because I'm like, okay, video game character has to include bosses as well. She is the only true boss on this list that I fought in a game. And uh, yeah, she takes my number five spot. So yeah, I, kn- I know Leland, you've never seen this character. so No, no. Um, I've watched many speedruns of some of those Silent Hill games, but Silent Hill Origins is not one of them. Uh, but I like it. I like I like uh, the 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 boss monster pick. Uh, interesting, and, and you know it's funny. My number five. Uh, speaking of in- intensity, uh, as far as combat and, and uh, opponent goes, uh, my number five are are the big daddies from Bioshock. Nice, nice. And man, these big daddies are so cool. Bioshock is one of my long-standing favorite franchises. I uh, had some dips and some high points obviously the original is a massive high point for me and the first time i still remember the first time you had i had to fight a big daddy and kill it as you know the big daddies are like these genetically modified people in huge diving bell suits with a massive drill arm and their purpose is to defend the little sisters which harvest this uh they harvest Adam, which is used to manipulate D&D, uh, D&D, manipulate DNA <laughs> uh, down in the underwater city of Rapture. And their sole purpose is to be protectors. They're not antagonistic to you. You can walk into an area with a number of big daddies and they leave you alone until you tag them or you get too close to the little sisters. So the, the, the fact that the game forces it to be a necessity to take down these gentle, literal gentle giants that are solely there to protect these admittedly strange and modified little girls that walk around with giant needles, sticking them into corpses and draining them of, <laughs> of their DNA st- strands. I don't know. They're just like, they're, they're intense when you fight them. Eventually they get to the, the end of the game where it's like, they're almost trivial, but still you, you almost like your heart strings are kind of plucked every time you have to kill one. And <laughs> I don't know. There's such a great 
atmospheric enemy. It's it added so much to to that game and those fran and the franchise, quite frankly. Well, yeah, and I mean, you have had a Big Daddy custom, um, I don't even know what you call it, uh, artwork, hang above your couch where we watch movies like five plus years. Yeah, yeah, it's one of my favorites, actually. Yeah, it's it's really cool. Um, thank you for sharing that, because I didn't actually know, I mean, I've always seen the Big Daddies with the little girls, but I didn't know that they were solely protectors. That they did not immediately, like, engage you like a normal enemy. Yeah, no, no. They're very, very cool. Very cool concept, I think. So at number four, I have a guy named by John. Well, it depends which game, but he's either called Bradford or Central. Um, he's from the modern XCOM series, uh, XCOM Enemy Unknown and also XCOM 2. Um, so he's the guy that gives you your missions, that tells you what the situation update is. Um, he's really cool. But what I like about him is in the first game, He's like a young, plucky guy in his 30s. He's very clean cut. And he's like, hey, yeah, you know, welcome to fighting the aliens. You know, we're we're going to hit him in Canada. We're going to hit him here and there. And by the time XCOM 2 comes around, which is 15 years later, which you find out even though you, you think you've beaten the aliens in XCOM 1, you actually haven't. And you basically need to fight as insurgents in XCOM 2. Suddenly the world's all gone to shit. They put a brand new voice actor for the guy. They put scars all over his face. He's jacked up by 25 pounds and like, you know, maybe 50 steroid shots to the ass. They got a new voice actor for him, like you said, I think. And he's like, yeah, I'm Bradford. Welcome back. And suddenly he hates everyone on your ship. He's like the most, he's like the biggest dick ever. He still gives you your missions, but he's like, yeah, they've destroyed half of Canada. Get in there and save what's left. And you're like dealing with this guy that's become like a nihilist. It's like <laughs> lost his innocence between the two games. And he's still trying to lead you to victory. But I mean, he's both become a badass plus lost everything that's him. And apparently in some later like expansions, which I don't have yet. You know, he basically becomes an actual soldier that you can put on your team. With, oh, like a cool. gigantic cannon. That's awesome. And. I don't know, like, between the two games, he's such an endearing character because he <laughs> tells you all about what you're supposed to do with the aliens and he talks to you so much and stuff like that, but he undergoes such a, like, character arc yeah. to get to where That's he goes. Cool. But still, he has the same objective, just maybe going about it in a little different way. Yeah, as in, like, you know, 180 <laughs> degrees different way. From, like, Mr. Nice Guy to, like, get in there. We're all dead anyway. So, <laughs> nihilistic so, soldier. <laughs> he totally is nihilistic. He totally is nihilistic. And it's awesome because I played the games back to back. I beat the first one and, like, the next day started the second one. And I'm like, Bradford, what happened to you? You were a beautiful child, oh, man. man. That's amazing. That's super cool. I really like that. <laughs> Anyways, what's yours? Well, speaking of character arcs, my number four is Aloy from Horizon Zero Dawn. Ooh. She, she, uh, she's just like a badass. It, it, it's really, it, it's honestly truly amazing how Guerrilla Games, who's was not known for any making a, a game anything like this, like this open world exploration third person uh, adventure game. I mean, they're be they're best known for their Killzone games, which is an FPS, you know, gritty dystopian shooter. 
but they 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 were so able to portray this young woman learning everything about the world around her and outside of her village because the setting for those unaware something has happened some type of apocalypse has happened to the the world um you know thousands of years ago or whatever the timeline is and the, it's kind of starting to be revitalized and there are no actual animals around all the animals are these robotic portrayals of the animals so you go in and you're like well nobody knows where these come from everything is basically back into the stone age with little bits of tech sprinkled around as you know it's kind of been incorporated uh through like scavenging and stuff in some of these tribes but she's kind of shunned from her tribe i think it is and she goes out to explore this world. So you're – as her as a character is learning about the world, so are you as a player. And you just see how it's reflected in her dialogue uh, interactions with NPCs. And as the game progresses, she very clearly and distinctly goes from this like skilled, albeit naive, 19-year-old woman into like this total fucking badass that literally I was near the end of the game and she was having this interaction. She was telling – she was telling this this sibling that – uh, their their brother was dead. I, yeah. And just like the way, I mean, it's reflected in the voice acting, but the way Aloy as a character handled herself in that situation, I, I suddenly was like, oh, she's 19? What? Like she grew, she <laughs> grows so much and so like organically and and naturally in this game. Like it's, it's really incredibly well-written character. Uh, it was a delight to play as Aloy uh, in, a, in a very interesting new ip as well that's awesome man that's awesome if that ever comes out for switch i'm i'm so gonna get highly recommend i mean if i like if i like xenoblade chronicles i'm sure i'll like it it is um i believe it's out on uh on steam now actually recently okay okay you know what hey pretty powerful gaming pc i will definitely look that up okay so my number three is my one true nostalgic pick out of all five and this is also my one main character out of all five, which is Dash Rendar from the N64 turned PC game Shadows of the Empire. Mm. So listener, my parents decided to get me some piece of shit console that existed in Radio Shack for two minutes in 1989. The TurboGrafx-16 is my first system. Um, after that passed away, God bless it, even though games for it are like $400 plus nowadays, many of them. We first got a real mainstream system in an N64, and I begged for that, and I saved up. Even though it was a birthday present, I paid like $100 worth of it. Nintendo 64 was Shadows of the Empire, and I was like happy as a clam for like a year as a kid because I loved that game so much ever since playing it at, uh, actually, at my friend's house who I mentioned uh, two episodes ago, Aaron Hebler. Mm. It was first at his house that I played Shadows of the Empire, and I believe we touched on that in the episode um so dash render is the main character uh the game is a mix of vehicle segments on rail shooters and like complete you know 360 degree move around first person shooting i love that game to no end i played the absolute shit out of that game for like i think i had the system in that one game for a year before i rented or purchased a second game wow it was like nuts. That's a lot of life out of that cartridge. It was. And Dash Render was kind of like a uh, Han Solo light. He was a very similar personality. You could see how he talked in cutscenes and stuff like that. But uh, I, I love Dash Render. I remember like myself and some other, you know, geeky friends in the playground at school, like playing 
ship where like the lucky one of us that day got to be dash rendar and the rest of us got to be like stupid scooby-doo or some shit that helped out dash rendar. <laughs> and uh yeah anyways i i just love that character so that's it that's a good pick that's a good pick my number three is also kind of nostalgic I, i'm realizing a lot of these <laughs> franchises are things i played when i was young and in my formative teenage years this one right in there uh big boss slash naked snake specifically yes. from the metal gear solid series uh in medical metal gear solid 3 snake Eater. he had yet to become uh big boss which he achieves at the end of this game so it's a bit of a prequel for the franchise uh set in the uh, late 60s i believe and man this game really affected me just like from the relationship that uh, snake builds with uh, this woman Eva, who's this fellow agent in the field that's helping him in his in his mission, and uh, all the way to the like how he struggles with the the relationship with his old mentor and friend, the boss, who in the very opening of the game defects to the USSR. As uh, you know, Nick Snake is like a an operative, like a CIA operative or whatever it is. This is like the one and only video game. That at the end credits, I was crying because really? of what, oh man, just, I, I I mean, it seems stupid to, to say I don't want to spoil anything on a game that's like 15 years old, but if you've never played this game, oh man, it's, it's an amazing, amazing game. It is by far, far and away my favorite MGS game. It's fantastic, man. Just like it's the, the the characters are so believable and their motivations are so fucking believable. I just man, it was like Hideo Kojima at his fucking finest. And where is he now? Fucking Death Stranding <laughs> garbage. God. <laughs> man, you know what? You always raved about that game since day one. And this is weird. You backed it up with your wallet because Big Boss looms over your couch right beside Big Boss. I think there's a trend here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I I love the idea of Big Boss. In fact, um, of all the PS2 games you've given me, maybe I should prioritize that one above all others because I would love to see that story. It's good, man. Question for you. Do I need to beat MGS 1 or 2 to play and enjoy the uh, Metal Gear Solid 3? I was just about to say, it being like it's it, this prequel is basically as a standalone game. I mean, you may, you may, because I've never played like the Metal Gear series. I've only ever experienced the Metal Gear Solid games. So uh, you can absolutely play Snake Eater before without playing any of those other ones. Like, it's just beautiful masterpiece standalone in the middle of this really excellent friend highly acclaimed franchise uh, i mean it's it's a it's a hell of a fucking game hell of a game i'll do it man i'll do it i'll prioritize it it goes top of the list all right, right. <laughs> i just think it's awesome i love that picture of big boy that you have it's always been like my favorite piece of your mini it's awesome cool pieces yeah of art that's a good one and i always um you know, I call my boss at work Big Boss for the same reason. <laughs> That's awesome. Is, is Big Boss. So, Okay, so number two for me. Um, I mentioned there was a slight asterisk beside Link as my favorite character. So my second favorite character is a character called Hero's Shade from Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess. Now, who uh, Hero's Shade actually is, do you know? I do know. Up? Yes, I do know. Okay, listener, 
So the most famous Link. So so Link in The Legend of Zelda, he lives, he fights a battle, he dies. Between 100, 1,000, occasionally 10,000 years later, another Link is born to rescue the world. So Hero Shade is actually the most famous Link, the most important Link from both uh, Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time, and also Majora's Mask. So you go through these very important quests with him, only to find out later that he actually like died in battle or something alone in the woods. So all he is is a ghost with one red eye. He looks horrific. Um, he's like a skeleton ghost. And suddenly the blasted mute can like speak Shakespearean at the new link. He's like, oh, thouest link. Welcome back, you know, I shall teach you all these moves. And he basically teaches you all these really cool moves, some old ones, some new ones. And throughout the game, Legend of Zelda Twilight Princess, you basically go, they're called howling statues. You transform into Wolf Link, which is something you can do. And you howl these old classic songs from Ocarina of Time. And Hero Shade shows up to, like, teach you in battle these new moves and you basically have to perform them like twice on him to learn the move and it's it's awesome but also heartbreaking that like the work you did led to this really cool character but he's also dead and cursed as a ghost no matter what you do like doomed to train future links and I hope he shows up in future games because he is very popular. Like in the hardcore Legend of Zelda fan series, Hero Shade is a really popular character. Um, and so you kind of hope he shows up again in like Breath of the Wild 2 or something. That would be amazing. Very cool. Yeah, it's like he died and it's like, well, death in being cursed taught him how to speak. So uh, it's amazing how that's, that works. That's a very, very cool character concept. I really like that. I really, I really dig that. That's awesome. Well, my number two is Kratos. Who would have guessed? Two? Specifically Kratos from the OG God of War trilogy. Oh. And even more specifically from God of War 3. This is like peak rage-filled, down with the status quo of these Olympic gods on high Kratos. And... Again, I played these games with my former as a young teenager playing these games into my early 20s from like one God of War 1 to 3. The feeling of like the overwhelming rage and just wanting to lash out at the world, the only way that Kratos knows how to fix it. It's just it was incredibly appealing to me at the time and really really resonated with me and was this outlet for maybe some of the same feelings that I was having as you know moving through puberty through my teenage years you know into young adulthood all that shit it was just like i don't know i i i've always really connected with kratos's might and like strength of will and stubbornness uh something <laughs> it's just i just fucking love kratos i love 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 kratos man okay that's awesome but it now makes me very curious where you're going to go with your number one, mm. because that's who I penciled in as your number one. Yeah, yeah. Could be another version of Kratos, could be a different character, keep it a secret, I don't know. For my number one, Leland, this is the one character I thought you might be able to guess. If I say it and you don't guess him, I think you'll go, oh, okay, Moby, I, I, I can see it. Okay. But do you care to take a guess? 
I can give you a hint. Okay. Is it is it from Silent Hill game? No, but he's from the Resident Evil franchise. Oh. Who would be my favorite of all Resident Evil characters all? All. Oh, okay. Well, obviously, it's, it's got to be Wesker. Ding, ding, Hello. ding. Leland wins the <laughs> jackpot. Uh, listener, there's no character in video game history that I love more than Albert Wesker. He was the coolest thing ever since I played my first ever survival horror game, which was the 2002 Resident Evil remake. Uh, he's the whole reason why I play like two, like three quarters Chris Redfield's segment versus Jill. It's because Chris encounters Wesker more often. (laughs) He's just the cool guy ever. He's a guy that wears sunglasses no matter what hour it is of the day. Blonde hair, looks like Iceman from Top Gun, who's one of my favorite video game characters. And I'm sure Wesker was like modeled after Iceman. It's like, who else could he be? And he's just so awesome. And you encounter him in a bunch of places. Like he's fighting Lisa Trevor, who's one of the like, you know, indestructible bosses. And you just see him and your first thing you see is like he throws his nine millimeter to the side in his hand and a cart you know like a magazine falls out and he puts in another one in he's like hey chris take a piece of the action (laughs) man i will fucking follow you into hell i will follow you into the trenches of berlin and world war five you know he's just he's so cool and what it ended up being actually what i didn't know at the time is that albert wesker's pretty much the main character very least main antagonist of the entire Resident Evil series. Yeah, For all we true. know, he might still be up until this point. He's supposedly dead. He supposedly died in RE6. RE6 or RE5? Did he come back for RE6? He did come back for RE6. Oh, I didn't know sure. that. <laughs> okay, cool. But he's supposedly gone since then. But we've only had RE7, which was kind of a side story right. in Louisiana. And now we're getting RE8. Um, and who knows what Wesker may set, you know, come up. But I liked him in the games a ton. I actually thought he was fairly well done in his uh, supporting role in the vi- in the movie series, which was really up and down. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, f- favorite video game character all time. I had no problem coming up with him as number one. It was everyone else that, that I had trouble with. That's that's cool. I, I had uh, the same ease with my number one. It's Kratos. Who would have oh, guessed? Oh, oh. <laughs> but specifically, old man Kratos from the latest God of War iteration, and what what, what nice. we can call the Norse era, as before he was in the Greek era. Now, I did. This is what I talk about when I say maybe I cheated a little bit here, but. To see how far old man Kratos has come from the young, rage-filled Kratos, it's, I don't know, it's so incredibly cool for, especially for me to love the hell out of Greek-era Kratos and see this role reversal for when it comes to old man Kratos. As as before he was, you know, Greek-era was the, the, discovers he's the son of Zeus and neglected by... From his father and, you know, he has his brother that's died and all this huge backstory and all he wants is revenge on the gods for fucking up his life. And now here he is the father and you see, knowing the character's history, you see all of the influences on his parenting style and where, like, why he is the way he is and how he's trying to combat it. But he needs this interaction with Atreus, his son to actually continue to grow. So he's not even done growing. And like, I feel like I've grown up with Kratos too. 
Like, mm. I matured with Kratos. I mean, I'm obviously not a dad, thank God. It's easy, <laughs> but it's so easy to understand the need for that growth and change as I move into my 30s as well. Man, it's just like this. They've done this character so, so much justice. Oh, I love Kratos. God damn it. I love Old Man Kratos. Fuck, man. Easy number one. Old Man Kratos. Old Man Kratos. All right, sir. Good, sir. You both like surprised me and confirmed me. <laughs> Kratos is your number one. He was your number one. And you know what? When you put him as your number two, like I'm not going to shame you for that. It does make sense why you would split Kratos into two different characters because he became two different characters. Absolutely. What's interesting is I had two more points to go, but by the very definition of our top five, we basically answered them, which is, are the games these characters featured in our favorite games as well? Uh, certainly from my NDS, yeah, me too. without exclusion. And the second thing is, can a great character be in a shitty game? I could not actually find an example of that in my collection. If you could, let me know. No, um, no, I couldn't uh, rack my brain. I, I I don't know because I feel, well, especially now, like I don't play shitty games anymore because I don't have Fair. the time to inv- and money to invest into shitty games. The games I play in Target are generally, like if you were to give them a rating, like in between a 7 and a 10, like, I, you know, you try to avoid the garbage. So... No, I don't know. But I do think, though, you can always find something redeemable in some of these shitty games. Obviously, not always. Maybe that's a misspeaking there. But it's certainly plausible, (laughs) right? Like, some games just have a fatal flaw that was outside of maybe even its narrative. But it's tough to get around when your your main interaction with it is, is trash. I mean, outside of PC games that I have on Steam, I've literally throwing all my shittiest games in the garbage. So I probably wouldn't even remember who is good characters from them. Well, I think I think that speaks volumes, though, because even if you play a shitty game in, its, in full, if the character is a specific character from that game is memorable, even a decade later, then that was a good character. Okay, well, that was interesting. That was good. That was, a, uh, that was a good segment. I like that. There. You know what I thought might be on your list? I don't know why, but I thought maybe you would enjoy... Uh, or are you like the the therapist from Silent Hill Shattered Memories? I don't know why I would thought I thought that. Yeah. No, you know what? He was on my list. He would have been number 6. He was bumped off by Mama because I wanted one boss character. Okay. All right. I dig it. He would have been. I I loved that therapist. I loved his voice. I loved even at points he like raged at you. He was so good, but I'm like, look, otherwise it's all protagonists or like helpers of you. Yeah. And I'm like, I'd bump him to number six. I actually had written a honorable mention section that would have had him in, but um, I deleted it. Okay. All right. Cool. No, I like it. But yes, excellent choice. Very good. Very good character. Nice. Uh, shall we move on? To crazy about cardboard, where here we're going to take our chances. Basically, yeah, discussing skill-based ba- games versus chance-based games or random-based games. Uh, I think there, I would like to touch on a bit of a distinction between chance and random randomness. I, I think there's lots of overlap there, but I do think there is a bit of difference. Differences there. 
Yeah, and, and this is one where the segment, I mean, full disclosure, I really want to kind of, you know, question you and even uh, defer to you in certain cases, because at the end of the day, you you are the board game guy on this show. Um, and so as you just alluded to, how, how do you determine kind of the difference between, you know, chance, randomness? Well, I think uh, when it comes to something like like chance, let's say if you're if you're playing, how do I eloquate this properly? If you're playing to maybe you have an out and you're playing to an out, say you're, you know, you're playing a card game and you know what's in your deck and you're playing towards maybe this last grasp at an opportunity or to, to claim victory, say. Uh, so you should always play to your outs, right? Now, the randomness comes in from the random draw, say. But there's still the chance that you pull off the victory based on how maybe you've constructed your deck, uh, how how you've taken the time to invest yourself into that deck and learn what's in it and how to actually pilot it. And obviously, that example is quite specific to a certain type of game, <laughs> right? Like some type of deck-constructed game, obviously, that maybe not can't quite apply to every genre of tabletop game but that's kind of what i think of you know what i mean like i mean the randomness the most uh easily put random uh, effect of randomness is to roll a, a die hmm. okay okay fair enough um i mean first question i've got is do we meaning you and i each uh take a pick do we prefer games based on chance or skill and for me ideally i feel like i would want a game based on 75 percent skill 25 percent chance okay how about yourself i uh i don't know i don't know if i really thought about it putting it in percentage wise but i would probably say that that seems like a pretty decent breakdown i mean i definitely agree with that i think your game to I think to keep it interesting over multiple plays, your game needs a bit of chance slash randomness in it. Right. And that also adds into maybe some variability from gameplay to gameplay. It could extend the longevity of that game, potentially. But uh, as I'm sure we'll we'll speak on, it could also be it could still be an integral integral part or mechanism of the game, but still only come into play like 25% of the time. Like, you know what I mean? Like it's, it, 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 right. it, it could easily overshadow other mechanisms, but it doesn't have to, and it shouldn't in my opinion. Yeah. And the example I have here actually is magic, the gathering. Now I feel intuitively and I have absolutely nothing empirically to back this up. But if you were to ask me, Moby, when you build a magic deck with your cards, what do you feel the ratio is your skill in building the deck and collecting the cards versus the chance, which pretty much is drawing the cards that you need, it would feel like a 75% skill to 25% chance ratio. Okay. Now you now you play magic with me, you can feel free to completely disagree with me, but that's that's my feeling. Well, yeah, I I, I guess like that's you putting a percentage on on random draw. Right. Which maybe is unfair. Does that discount, though, the skill in your deck construction? Like, how do you have a perfect deck construction skill? I, you know, <laughs> the correct answer is I don't know. But 
as you know, there are certain decks I can build, such as, uh, uh, well, for certain, my Goblin deck. I'm sure I have some other decks that annoy you to absolute hell, but Goblin is one. Mirrorfolk is maybe another. You can construct them to this critical mass of them to work. Yeah, you can tell they're clearly better than many other decks I play you with. Absolutely. And, And you just feel it, regardless of the draw. Right. <laughs> and, and the reverse is true. I hate to say this because I love it. I love it to death. I love your efforts. But your legend deck often doesn't perform <laughs> like a bunch of heroes that they should be. It's terrible, I know. But but you love it. And I love playing against it. And it has so much flavor. And the like cards are actually good taken individually. But like the whole doesn't feel like it's that 75 to 25 ratio right. or anything close to it. Well, I mean, I think uh, uh, the epitome of that is you can you can put 22 to 25 of your 60 cards in that deck as lands and still get mana screwed because yeah. you, it just happens every, every so often and you'll get a game where you're just drawing blanks on that mana and you can't get anything going. So, so does does the game need that? Is that a question? Yeah. Does do you think Magic the Gathering specifically needs that as some type of function, whether or not whether that's some type of you know quote unquote balancing thing, like, or is it just, well, we're working within the confines of of all of the the, the rules of the game, and that is unfortunately a downside of what we've built, because if we try to do anything else, it's not going to be as good as what we. We don't feel that it's going to be as good as what we've built. Yeah, a- anecdotally, I would say yes. So listener Dan, one of the things with him that I always didn't understand, even though I later bought him sleeves to partially alleviate this problem, um, listener Dan was a very poor shuffler. And so he would build decks of 22, 24, even up to 26 lands and continually be mana screwed because he would not, for the lack of a better term, aggressively shuffle his cards like I would. And I felt like he was doing himself and his deck a disservice, which otherwise were well-built. Hell is like birthday presents. I I know I built him at least one of his main decks that he still has, if not two out of his three main decks. And the idea was like, sorry, they need to be shuffled accurately. Or like... You know, in a way that spreads out the cards in a fairly random manner. Right. Um. So I do think that has an effect, especially in card games. And I don't want to get bogged down in card games too much. Sure, but sure. I, that would be a I point. think the bottom line is, no matter what that acceptable, you know, percentage you might have in your mind, chance slash randomness will always inevitably trump any amount of skill you can put into a game. Like, it, it will happen. Yep. It's not going to happen every time. Depending on the game, it can happen very seldomly, but it can happen, and that's the nature of the randomness. Right. And a game like that, okay, so here's a game that I feel is skill-based that I absolutely suck at is Lords of Vegas, a perennial T-HUD favorite. You think that's skill-based? Uh, I did. Now I feel like I'm facing the Grand Inquisitor. No, no, no. I, I just, okay, so wh- why do you think it's, why do you think it's skill-based? You know what? I think it's because I perhaps don't understand some of the game mechanics Hmm. because I see yourself and my brother play it and go smarty and you guys seem to really get that game and I can survive. I cannot embarrass myself 
but you guys really seem to know what you want to do each turn and i don't i'm just like okay i'll bet against you and i hope i get lots of money you guys are like yeah i'll buy this i'll buy this district i'll build this up yeah and i honestly don't get that interesting okay i like lords of vegas is like always in my ever rotating top five i fucking love that game such a fun i have a great time every time i play that game regardless of a win or lose but i i think that game is uh the epitome of chance i think like if anything maybe a a higher percentage that 75 to 25 is switched for skill versus chance like that game is like 75 percent chance in my opinion and in this instance, uh, specifically, this is a good example, actually. I use the word chance over randomness because there there are dice rolls in Lords of Vegas, meaning there is randomness, but overarching uh, mechanism of the game is chance. You're always playing to your best odds, like, you know, very thematic, as it is about building up casinos on the Las Vegas Strip because you know you have a certain you have like six different colors of casinos you put and the casinos pay out slash earn you points as you randomly you draw a card from a deck and the color card uh pays out and scores for corresponding casinos but you always know how many cards have been drawn you know how many start in the deck you won't play through the entire deck so there is again more randomness in that aspect but you always have an out that you can play to and will most likely benefit from because you always know your best odds so i think that is where like that bit of skill you can Im- implement that skill i would say like lords of vegas itself is a is a pretty light game so for me that game can easily get away with having more of chance over skill despite myself preferring the other way around you know what game i wanted to ask you about is it chance or is it skill is the mind the mind <laughs> Oh, man, that is a really good question. Is that not a good question? That's a really good question. Because when it works, it feels like it's skill. It feels like it's skill. It feels like you know each other. Absolutely. And it, and if it doesn't work, you feel like this is like throwing a die against a wall, trying to hit a one, but the die doesn't have a one. <laughs> that's right. Oh, right? man. It, that's it a, feels so weird. That's a stumper of a question for me because I really can't tell you uh i i think there's definitely skill you can employ just based on as cards get played you can again you have like this range potentially well you know that because this would be the lowest card this card i have in my hand there can't be anything below it so i'm free to play right but obviously that doesn't happen with every card there is inevitably when you get up into like the higher rounds like five or six cards everyone's got a handful of cards you're, I don't. Yeah, man, that's a really good question. Super good question. I don't have an answer. I think I want to say skill. I want to say skill. I I want to say skill as well because I want to say like if you and me do a seance with Go Smarty and try to play it like ten times in a row, which we never would do, that we could learn each other's tendencies and learn each other's traits to the point that we could improve, and that would have to be skill. By that's a really that's a really good point and and actually to the contrary i think that's predominantly how people play that, play that game they play it over and over and over and over again with the same group in a single sitting because it's so quick especially if you fuck up so yes you do learn your group's mannerisms and like well historically after six games moby's only ever played a card 
uh, that's you know has a seven number gap between what's on the table. So if he's not playing, he's got a, ho- a card higher than say a fifty four because there's uh, forty seven on the table, right? That's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I think you. I mean, that conclusively settles it for me. The mind is a skill based game. <laughs> mind is skill-based. And listener, if you have not played the mind, I mean, I assume it's a fairly inexpensive game because it's a deck of cards. Yeah. It it is an excellent game. I would go to the point that it's borderline in experience. When you play it, and if you play, say, even just three rounds back to back, something like that, you'll start to feel weird because all of your brain's energy is focused on reading other brains and intuitively doing things in reply to other brains. And I know that sounds weird. Just give it a shot, listener, and I think you'll understand. It's it's different than any other. Yeah, game. man, I remember when the mind was like the rage. I think that was 2017 it came out because that was the summer I went to Paris and I brought my copy with me to Paris. And like after a day out exploring the city, after we've all had a bunch of dinner and booze, we would sit in the lobby of the hotel Busting out the mind, just playing a card game. Like, that was some of the best parts of, of that trip for me. That's awesome. Such a good game. Such a great game. That's a really, That's awesome. really good game to bring up. So, the, I mean, the next point, uh, asking if we can think of a game that relies too much on either of the either end of the spectrum. Yeah. I, I mean, if you want to ask me, I've got uh, I've got two, two things. Okay, um, let's hear I think them. there's... Yeah, I've got two that rely too much on uh, on chance okay. and not one that remi- relies too much on skill. By very definition, if one relies too much on skill, you simply need to hone your skills. This early one we never play together, but it's a classic game, Risk. I mean, Risk to me compared to so many other games is so stupid nowadays. <laughs> it's like, just move in bulk units, hope you roll a certain amount of rolls and maybe you'll win the battle if you roll a certain amount of fives or sixes so that you're high enough. I mean, yeah, I guess you kind of stack the odds by the amount of troops you bring into a battle, but that's just dumb, and that doesn't accurately reflect warfare. Right. So maybe I'm drilling too deep into that as a guy that's, you know, into the history of warfare and whatnot, but um, that's something. Uh, another one that's chance, uh, the gateway, known as the gateway game to all true board games, Settlers of Catan. Um, I've had so many bad experiences with chance in that game, with like trying to do my best to put my towns or my settlements on spots that never get rolled, despite fairly high odds. Yeah. And it's just, no- just annoys the hell out of me. So what about you, Leland? Things that rely... I'm going to go the other way. So things that rely too much on skill. Now, I don't know that this is really uh, a negative for me personally. But some of the the games with higher skills... I, I mean, like you say, if the game is... If you're struggling with the game, then you need to hone the skills that the game requires you to have. So... By that definition, the game is would usually be a more involved game, right? It would have a little more more layers to it, and I think uh, Twilight Struggle is a is a really good example of that, because bes- depending on the side that you start with, whether you're the USSR or the USA, 
there's a there is right from the very first move an optimal an optimal move that you should take. It doesn't matter because the game state always the game's always starting in the same game state, so it doesn't matter which side you're on, or or even what hand of cards you draw. There's always that opening move that you should always do to maximize the side you're playing. I don't really like that, and I think that is that harkens back to why games should have a bit of chance or randomness in them, uh, because. For like for me, that's if you're if you're for, for me for someone that likes to introduce a lot of people to different types of games. If I know those moves, I I don't really want to to do them against someone I'm teaching a game like that. And I really like to play those types of heavier games, so I don't want to do that. But I also don't want to let them win. Like I want to teach them and 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 be able to. Teach them so they can confidently play the game against somebody that has played it more than once. And those games make it difficult for that to happen if you're not all learning that game together. I do love that game, though. It's a great game. <laughs> no, it's, that, that's a good point, though. So I guess, yeah, listener, it can kind of go either either way. Um, I want to bring up D&D. Um, this is something you're a little bit more familiar uh, than I am with the topic of uh, die rolls. Now, you have been a dungeon master. I've been one too, but you've been a dungeon master much longer than I have. And I don't want to make this too interviewee, but I don't really see any way around it. When you're a DM currently with the Encourageable Party and whatnot, yeah. how how do you weigh die rolls for characters making creative decisions? So like, you know, say Bill has a creative idea of jumping up on a box onto a shelf and then diving on someone with a dagger like do you go like okay make a roll with a plus four bonus whether or not you tell them or not or do you not affect chance at all ah man that's a good question i well personally i don't really fudge my own die rolls behind the screen but when it comes to giving a character agency if it is something like that action that you describe, that's not out of the realm of possibility. Like that should be fairly right. easy for a proficient adventurer. Uh, so I feel like even in that situation, like I don't even know if I'd ask for a skill. You know what I mean? Like, mm. but obviously when they're trying to do something that's like superhuman, you got to gauge uh, whether it's in the realm of possibility at all, and whether it's even worth asking them for a role because if it's something that you're like going to set like a, a difficulty check of like 30 or 40 what's the point of asking them the role because right. they're not going to they're not going to get it i will say though that some of the most fun role-playing uh, situations come out of the characters failing to do something so uh, i'm definitely like you shouldn't be afraid to ask them for a bunch of roles i mean they're everyone wants a roll of dice they're there to roll of dice so i hope that they my characters, whoever they may be, feel comfortable asking to do something and saying, I want to attempt to do this, knowing that I will give them the leniency to, to, to roll with it, so to speak. <laughs> I don't know if that really answered your question, right. but... <laughs> no, it did. It did. It did. No, that's, that, that's fair enough. But it does actually segue perfectly into my second question, which is, in your experience with the sessions you've run, 
Um, do you ever forgive a critical fail or fudge fudge a critical fail, or do you just like okay, you're fucked? I well, it's funny you should say that. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-oh. No, I don't forgive critical fails. Critical fails is a critical. So in in our game, we've homebrewed, so uh, it's not a base rule of Dungeons and Dragons Fifth Edition. But if you critically fail, you and you're next to an ally, you hit your ally with that attack. Oh. Or if you're by yourself, you injure yourself and you do full damage on that attack. Oh. Oh. We had a situation where one of the players critically failed and they were standing next to another player that was in the dying condition and making death saving throws. That did not end well. <laughs> oh no. Was it like a full perma kill? The uh, character in question did end up dying, yes. <laughs> wow, listener. Yeah, yeah. You're to hear. I, actually, it's funny. I recently uh, got some uh, some flack from that from a newish listener. <laughs> it was like, Adam, like, why does that make any amount of sense? <laughs> Leland, Leland is a steel. He ain't no Jesus. <laughs> he ain't going to resurrect you. <laughs> yeah. Wow, okay. That's... That, uh, that, that's, you know what, honestly, man, I'm surprised in a, in a good way that you would do that. I, I honestly thought you would be too kind to be like, oh, that critical fail is <laughs> plus 18. Uh, you're, you're fine. You know, something like that. And that you kind of followed through with that. I think that's great. Well, I mean, here, here's the flip side of that is when they roll a critical hit, we also have a house rule for our crits where normally you would just roll twice you roll your dice twice we actually max out the base damage and then you roll a second you roll them and add it to a max out die so if if your weapon's a d8 you're doing an eight plus a d8 roll plus your modifier on a critical hit so we get the flip side because i mean it really feels shitty when you roll a critical hit and you blank on your dice and you roll like two ones on your dice like it sucks right so i don't know it's a give and a take it's always a give and a take I, I like that, though. It, it basically means once you critically hit, you're doing something that feels heroic. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That, was, that was actually a great uh, house rule that uh, we adopted from the Dungeon Dudes who have their this uh, YouTube channel. And it was like one. I think they had, the video had a, in question had a, had a list of like their five favorite homebrew like house rules. Uh, it's a really good one. I recommend using it. it. It makes the like you say, it makes the players feel empowered when they. Yes, you see the 20 come up on that on that die. Awesome. Well, other than critical hits and critical fails, I mean, I, I do just want to bring the point that especially in D&D, I love the idea of die modifiers, um, plus or minus. I think it's uh, such a, a useful thing to games. Um, I just want to remind you of an anecdote. Uh, do you remember in the first ever uh, D&D we played where I was DM, where Dan um, was basically sucked off by a mind flare and decided to become a mind flare, taking like a minus three to his constitution i think it was yeah and i mean i mean like i tried to pose that as a devil's bargain and right away dan's like yeah yeah i want to be a mind flare yeah i'm like do you know what's going to happen here (laughs) because basically his ass got kicked in every single fight since that yeah and i'm not gonna go like so far with the hyperbole as that ended up leading to the end of our party but certainly dan listener dan became quite uh quite weak at that point yeah, I, I remember that very distinctly. 
<laughs> yeah, it was it was all downhill from there. Uh, um, kind of the last topic here that I that I hoped we could discuss is uh, games we like that uh, use chance or modify chance um, in a creative way. And uh, I'll, I'll I'll actually I mean I do have an example, but I'll actually open the floor to you first if you have any ideas. I mean, qu- quite frankly, when when it comes to like modifying and using applying skill to dice rolls really the first thing that does come to mind is axis and allies yeah i mean that entire combat system is based off of that right and that's that's literally yes what that's the linchpin of the game is the combat that's what it's made for and just i don't know i always love like that's my favorite part of that game is figuring out in from situation to situation what your best composition of troops should be and where you need to deploy them and where you, where you're going to put your resources, you know, that kind of stuff. Like that's my favorite part of that game. I love being able to, you know, build a tank, which hits on threes or lower, uh, you know, okay. Maybe you want to build some of the higher planes that have a better chance of hitting, but they're more expensive and all that stuff. Like that's like, feels to me the epitome of it. And I, I I like twilight period fourth edition, um, specifically fourth. Cause that's the only edition I've played heavily draws from that inspiration right from those types of war games and yeah. that stuff so like it, it's obviously something that's done correctly because many games adopt it and it's just a smart mechanism and it it, it yeah. takes the it takes the punch out of a failed die roll in my opinion because you're like well okay i lost this round but then you know the next combat the odds tip in your favor again so you you sway you back and forth but it always feels like you could you can do something with this mitt full of dice you were rolling to i mean personally full infantry all the time i always roll twos and ones (laughs) i love those infantry (laughs) stack me a dozen infantry i'll take on any number of tanks you throw at me they're toast (laughs) one two two one 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 (laughs) four five one 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 (laughs) Yeah, hope for that. No, I I get it. I get it. And actually, I had Axis and Allies on my list as as well as probably the best game I can think of that does die modifiers. And it's so simple, listener. It's basically, you know, your best stuff typically hits on uh, shots of four or under. Um, Your infantry, as Leland just mentioned, hit on a one. But they can be paired with artillery on a one-on-one basis where they can then hit on twos, which, you know, increases their odds. Oh, man, this was a good episode. Yeah, it was. I, I liked it. I actually like all segments that we did. Very, very nice. Shall we roll into end of show stuff? Rolling into show stuff, baby. All right. You can find us and our show notes and all the links we put there within ttpopcast.com or ttpopcast on Instagram, the Tia Popcast on Facebook. I'm on Twitter, Leland underscore Steel. And that's who I've been. And I occasionally troll him on Twitter, not so much anymore, but uh, <laughs> it's it's hard when, con- you know, condescending controversy becomes such an English tea, you know, afternoon event, polite <laughs> sipping, but <laughs> it is what it is, listener. Um, so with that, I would say take care, listener. Thanks, listener. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.